Did you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. All right. Thank you for coming back again. I really appreciate it. My name is Chris Epting. I'm an author. I'm a storyteller. And I am really into talking about people's moments and figuring out what those key moments are in someone's life to sort of see what you can learn from those things, how you can create new moments from those things. And uh, I want to thank everybody up front, first of all, for all the nice feedback about last week's kickoff show with Todd Rundgren. If you missed it, it's available. It is archived live here on Voice America. You can find it also on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher and basically wherever sound is recorded, <laughs> there is an episode waiting for you of, mom- of the moment with Todd Rundgren, as there will be with every other episode. Today, another great guest that I'm really excited to uh, let you eavesdrop on as we talk here. His name is John Oates. John Oates is, of course course, one half of rock and roll's most successful duo, Daryl Hall and John Oates. If you didn't know, John and I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Change of Seasons, John's memoir. And um, a lot of great stories and there are a lot of great moments in there, many of which you'll hear in the next hour. And briefly, the way that all came together, as a music journalist, I'd interviewed John a number of times. And if, if you ever interview people, you know sometimes when you make a good connection and the chemistry is right, because after the interview's done, you keep talking. And with John and I, that always happened. Whenever I interviewed him, the, the mic would go off when we were done, and the conversation would spill over into music and history and family and all kinds of stuff. So one day, I asked him if he'd ever considered writing his own memoir, collecting his moments and memories. And he said, nah, you know what? Those things tend to be salacious. Publishers only want a certain kind of book, and I'm, I just, it's not my interest. And I said, well, what if we could do it differently? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, what if we could structure something, a book, collection of stories that wasn't like that at all, but that really dug into the moments you wanted to focus on, things that were important to you? And he said, well, you know, if we could if we could write that book, I would be interested in working on that with you. So off to the races we went. A couple of years later, Change of Seasons came out from St. Martin's Press. You can find it all over the place, Amazon and and whatnot, and bookstores. Paperback came out this year. But I'm really proud of that book because it was a very collaborative process. And, you know, John's a great writer. He was a journalism student at Temple University in Philadelphia, and he knows how to write. So for us, it was really a very um, kind of tag team effort writing this book. And we're going to get into a lot of the stories now. The way this is going to go, it's about a 45-minute interview. It's a very sprawling, expansive conversation that I hope you can just kind of kick back and let play in the background or, you know, stop what you're doing. I think you'll enjoy it. And I will be back at the end of the show for several minutes to kind of wrap up. If you want to call in, there might be some time there at the end of the show. If you're interested in that, there is a toll-free number. And that number would be, let me have it right here. It is 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's toll-free. If you want to hang on to that number, you can check in with me at the end of the show. Maybe you read the book and you have a comment or you want to comment on the episode or maybe even share a moment from your life. But in any event, uh, what you're going to hear John talk about is everything from uh, the creation of some of the most famous Hall & Oates songs. You're going to hear about 
a great story. One of my favorite moments how we actually met Daryl Hall. It's a fun conversation, and uh, I'm looking forward to you hearing it. So why don't we get to it? My name is Chris Epting. This is The Moment with John Oates. I will be back here in about 45 minutes live. If you're listening live, you can call me. If you're not listening live, just sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Thanks for being here. John, thank you for being my guest here on The Moment. Well, thanks, Chris. I'd love to spend any moment I can with you. It's always a joy and a pleasure. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because we've had a lot, of, uh, a lot of private moments talking about your moments. That's what you do when you write a book. You spend just, you know, uh, countless hours trying to define sort of those those pinpoint moments when things happen in your life. So we, it's a little bit of a cheat talking with you because I already know so much. But that said, you still have these moments that I want to talk about a few, but is, if you've thought about it a little bit, is there one or two in your life that you think about where, where the tide changed and you look back on it today and you can, you can draw a line to it and say, yeah, that's where my life was, was just in, you know, forever changed by this, this one shift under me? Oh, I, I think there's a number of them, but I, I'll go back. I mean, if we're going to do this, I guess the, 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 the best thing to do would be go back to the earliest moment that I can think of, uh, would, which would be my parents' decision to move from New York City to Pennsylvania. Okay, that's not, just so you know, that's number one on my list for you because I think we both look, I mean, we learned though, this is this, the, the, the symmetry of our minds. That really is the one for you where if that doesn't happen, we're probably not talking right now. Yeah, a million things don't do, do, do. The world changes. My personal world is is uh, you know just rad- so radically different that I can't even I can't even fathom what would have happened. Describe why, for those that don't know or that God forbid have not read uh, your memoir, Change of Seasons. You know, you're a young boy. Your father takes a new job uh, down in Pennsylvania. What is it about that move from New York City though that that has such gravity for you? Well, the fact that, you know, uh, had I not had my parents not made the decision to move away from their entire family and their entire world of Manhattan and New York, the New York experience to a small town in Pennsylvania, it, 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 I became a uh, I grew up in the country as opposed to growing up as a city kid. I had completely different experiences, uh, I, different schooling, different education, uh, different types of, of I, be, I made different types of friends. I just became a different person. I became a a young boy who grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania as opposed to a young boy who grew up in Manhattan, New York City. Um, That alone is is a, a, you know, completely, uh, you know, an amazing radical change in in what my, what, you know, led to my future. Also, I think the fact that you were, it wasn't like you left New York forever. You still have the benefit of the family going, your family going back to see family members. So you were able to kind of straddle, you know, you were sort of a country mouse and a city mouse, right? You yeah. were able to have both influences. Very, very true. I, I did have, the, I always had that connection between uh, my connection to the New York City uh family and my upbringing in a small town in Pennsylvania, which I'm really glad I had because I wasn't, I wasn't just an innocent country kid. I did have. I did realize there was another world out there. So even as I was growing up in the small town and experiencing that that type of those type of experiences, I always knew that uh, you know, an hour and a half away, there was an entire different reality. Right. 
You know, fast forwarding, the next kind of moment I had on my list, you know, we go through, you become a wrestler in school, you begin playing music, you have your first couple of bands, but then there's that battle of the bands. And I think sort of magically last year, you went back to one of these sites with CBS Sunday Morning, uh, the TV program, back to uh, the old Adelphi Theater in Philadelphia, where you and your band and, and another band led by a guy named Daryl Hall were at this record hop, and you're going to play a song, lip sync a song, but gunshots ring out in the theater. You guys are pushed together in this theater, and there you meet a guy that you're going to end up spending a fair amount of your life with soon after. Seems like that moment in the elevator where you guys are pushed up fleeing the gunshots is another one that has you know, a very, very deep impact in your world. Uh, without a doubt. I mean, here again, uh, meeting and uh, becoming friends with Daryl Hall changed my entire life. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and that, that, that auspicious uh, coming together at a teenage dance in West Philly and having this, I mean, who knows? I mean, there's so many, so many small moments that had they not happened, Every here again, everything. What if we would have both um, arrived with our respective bands that day? And what if there would not have been a gang fight? And there were no shots that rang out. And his band did a lip sync and my band did a lip sync and we went our separate ways. And there was never any connection. Um, That's alone here again. You know, circumstance, it's amazing to think of how many seemingly insignificant circumstances Yeah, I mean, it's true. You guys may still have seen each other at Temple where you were going to school, but you wouldn't have had a connection. There may not have been a reason to say to reference the elevator or no spark at all. And I I think that one is just absolutely huge. I mean, I mean. for me, what's interesting is you, before even your mid-20s, you've got a whole batch of these moments that really are, when you look at them, most people don't have one or two of these. For me, another one that is um, just totally critical, you graduate from school, you do what a lot of kids do back then and still today is to go to Europe backpacking. Yours is somewhat more challenging and rugged. You're gone for several months uh, not a lot of money, not a lot of resources. You are sort of feeling your way across the continent. And uh, I think that's one of my favorite parts of the book we worked on are those stories of this young. It's sort of your last moment of anonymity where you could do a trip like that. And you come home to Philadelphia. You have kindly allowed Daryl Hall's sister to sublet your place. She has very unkindly not paid the rent. And you come back, you're padlocked out, you've been evicted, nowhere to go. You walk a few blocks down toward Quint Street, and you knock on the door of your old pal, Daryl Hall, and he sort of invites you in. And again, it's another moment where if she doesn't get evicted and you continue living in that apartment, you guys are not forced into this little tiny space. He puts you up in a loft, right? In one of the three-story lofts, he's very skinny um, former slave quarters called, they were called what, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost Houses. Yeah, right? Trinity Houses, whatever, yeah. Mm-hmm. And if, if if he doesn't have room for you and put you up in the loft, again, you're not forced into a scenario where you're making music together. You may be friends, you may be acquaintances, you may, may even jam once in a while, but being in those close quarters, all of a sudden now, it's sort of feast or famine. And again, without that padlock, the world may be very different, if not for that moment. It's it's incredible. Yeah, everything you said, you're spot on. Uh, and uh, you know, I mean, uh, all I know is that um, if I would have come to the door, I probably wouldn't have invited myself in. So, uh, so I have to give uh, give Daryl credit for being very uh, very kind and very nice uh, at that moment. 
John, when you went back with CBS Sunday Morning, you actually retraced a bunch of those places. You went back to the theater, Quinn Street. What was it like to go to go retrace? I mean, you and I did a little bit of that in Philadelphia not long before that, and it seemed to have a real effect on you when you connected the dots and went back to to addresses that you hadn't been to in decades where your past was really shaped. What was it like taking the CBS crew uh, to some of those haunts? It was, it was definitely, I, I, it was an emotional moment because um, I had, you know, obviously the one, the one thing that Philadelphia, one of the, one of the great characteristics of the city of Philadelphia is that a lot of things really don't change. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, you know, it, it kind of keeps its traditions and the neighborhoods are very similar, especially downtown. You know, they, they don't change the historic districts are still, they look very much like they did even back in the colonial days, but going to the Adelphi ballroom in West Philadelphia and being in that little alcove upstairs, um, I didn't, w- what struck me was how small it was, how kind of shoddy it was, how, mm-hmm. you know, what it, it, it really, it take, it took on a mythic kind of, um, you know, uh, element and feeling to me after all, after the, the story had been told so many times over the years, but actually standing in the room again really was very, very, very powerful. Uh, the, the, the freight elevator where we met and kind of escaped the, the gang fight was no longer there. It was boarded up, but the, but the square, the space was there. You could see where the door to the freight elevator was. Uh, so, yeah, it was. It definitely was moving, without a doubt. It was definitely something I felt like, you know, I really had a chance to relive a very uh, seminal moment, very seriously important moment in my life. That's the story people always tell when they talk about you guys, and it's uh, it was something to watch. You actually, I think, got very emotional on camera when you were in that space. It's, well, a, church, yeah. it's a church now, right? It's a, it was an, it's an African American church, mm-hmm. which is kind of nice. And you know, there there was something, there is something, I guess, holy about the whole existence for you. <laughs> but you seemed really taken. You seemed very taken aback when, when you were in there on camera. And it seemed to really have a deep effect on you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. John, when you, one other one I had on a list here. Again, now from this point on, uh, you guys are making music uh, to to truncate the story. There is a uh, a manager slash producer with perhaps um, not the most uh, reputable um, intent for you guys, and he basically burns through a lot of record labels. Uh, is not upfront with you guys about the positive feedback or the or the money he's trying to grind that ultimately costs you guys all these deals you'll never know about. So you and Daryl both kind of throw in for this sort of Hail Mary trip to Los Angeles where you know of this sort of esoteric mythical art collector named Earl McGrath who has his own little record label and, and some connection to Atlantic Records. And you hear about this, and it's another moment where you guys decide, really, in the absence of anything else, your last shot, potentially, at getting a contract is going to be going out and trying to impress uh, this art collector who lives in West Hollywood, right? Do, does that moment for you, that decision to make the trip to Los your first trip to California, does that stand out for you? Without a doubt. Um, it was It was one of those moments where I think it, in a way, it, it resonates to the um, to the way Daryl and I uh, have always tried to deal with our, the the, the uh, adversarial you know situations and or even the positive situations was to take matters into our own hands. And this was the first time where we said, "Well, obviously, there's nothing happening in Philadelphia. The guy we were working with was thwarting us, not helping us." And um, 
like making this trip to, to LA was just really, there was no plan. There was no, you know, we actually didn't know we were going to meet this art collector until we got out there and we met him through a uh, representative from Chapel Music who uh, just so kindly took us in, let us, let us actually sleep in his house. Um, I mean, we were pretty much penniless hippies at the point. So um, meeting Earl McGrath, uh, going to his house, auditioning for him, playing in his little garden, uh, and having him respond so positively and so genuinely, and then making the entree to Atlantic Records for us to New York was uh, was a game changer. Well, that's the net. This really is kind of a two part moment because based on Earl McGrath's enthusiasm, and he was a he was kind of a big shot. He sort of, uh, if not managed, was heavily involved with the Rolling Stones and 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 a real you know his hands in a lot of different creative pies. But he was definitely kind of a mover and shaker. So when he got excited, obviously Atlantic Records got excited, and he arranges this audition for you guys. A few weeks later, you come back to New York City, and thus becomes the fateful audition day. Where where you guys schlep your stuff up from Philly uh, on, a, on a cold November day. Uh, Daryl is sick, I guess. He's got a cold or a flu. You're coming off of probably the same cold or flu. And you guys have to go in uh, in front of an out-of-tune piano, in front of Arif Martin and other sort of luminaries from Atlantic Records and kind of sing for your soul. This is kind of the next moment where, again, if you don't pass go on this one, who knows what happens because you've exhausted essentially every other wrecking company. This may have been the end of the line as well. What is it? Take us inside that room. What is it like the day of that audition, knowing kind of what you're up against? Well, it was a small room uh, to just off the main studio room, a kind of almost like a very small rehearsal room. It was dark. It was cold. Um, there was just a piano, uh, a few folding chairs that the guys had put, the Atlantic folks had put in there. And into the room come basically three suits. It was uh, Arif Martin, Mark Meyerson, um, and uh, Jerry Greenberg. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were the, they, they walked into the room and basically I was there with an acoustic guitar. Daryl sat at the grand piano and we went through our little uh, musical dog and pony show, which was the songs that we thought were the best ones we had at the moment. And uh, it was, you know, I guess we were too innocent to be nervous. You know, it was like we it was almost like. I didn't really feel that much pressure, to be honest with you. I, it, we, we had done it so many times that it was just, hey, whatever will be, will be. We're, we're just going to sing and play, and here we go and see what happens. And really, it was at the end of the meeting. There was no real reaction. You know, they didn't jump up and down. They didn't, you know, show a lot of emotion. It really was because as so many corporate types I've learned over the years in my experience, they're, they're usually very um, – they're, they're not – they don't like to go out on a limb and commit to um, to endorsing something because there's always an ulterior motive from the business side, and they're afraid that if they do and it doesn't turn out right, then it's their it's their next. Uh, really, it wasn't until the end of the uh, you know little three or four song performance that Arif Martin said he literally just stood up and said, "I want to produce these guys," mm-hmm. and it was his. It was his uh, belief and his endorsement that that you know they just said if Arif wants to do it, it's good enough for us, and that's how the you know that's how it, it began to move forward. It's a hell of a moment, John. We're going to yeah. take a quick commercial break right now. My name is Chris Epting. This is the moment. My guest today is John Oates, and we will be right back. Yeah. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. You're back on The Moment. My name is Chris Epting. My guest today is John Oates, and we're talking about moments from, from John's life with, with Daryl Hall. I'm going to get to some solo moments. John, to pick up a little bit, when you talk about the, uh, the audition at Atlantic Records, you know, there's, I think, I always think of your audience as divided into sort of two basic groups. There are the ones that have been there pretty much from the beginning that have watched your evolution, and then there are the ones, big portion, who came in uh, of age in the 1980s with MTV and Voices album, Private Eyes, Big Bam Boom. And, and the second group doesn't realize that you guys were akin, sort of a parallel to today, what would be kind of like an indie act. I mean, not a big, what they think of as a very big, successful, even sort of corporate entity, as some people came to view you guys, but it really wasn't that. It was a very organic existence, very hand-to-mouth early on, and really um, kind of off the grid. You guys were not, uh, it wasn't this big plan. You guys were just kind of fumbling through doing what you do. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I think that's a common misconception with the, you know, in the general public who thinks about the whole notes because of the, the overriding success of the big hit singles in the 80s and MTV. It, it just creates this uh, image that we were these, you know, kind of calculated, uh, you know, industry driven hit makers who, um, you know, it was that was our sole motivation where nothing could be further than the truth the hits came all as a byproduct of you know uh, the entire decade of the 70s of hard work touring mistakes changing bands trying to record it you know in LA with different producers uh, get garnering experience from all these these uh, these things that happened to us and then in the 80s it all kind of came together but we we were an indie band i mean we we did everything that a, a new indie group does. You know, we traveled around in a van and in a Pontiac GTO and slept on people's floors and pl- played countless, uh, you know, sets at clubs and and built fans and built built an audience slowly and uh, 
eventually we had some record success but the record success did not come for at least three three years before you know we started recording in 72 72 73 74 it wasn't really until 75 when um sarah smile and rich girl and she's gone became hit singles right and you mentioned the third one there she's gone to me is another great uh, moment in your life to get back to this sort of moment theme were it not for uh, a stood up date on New Year's Eve, right? You're you're bopping around Greenwich Village one night in winter, and and tell the story. You meet a girl in a in a soul food restaurant, right? This crazy girl. Yeah, yeah. This girl just. Well, I mean, I I was in the, I was in a soul food restaurant at two or three in the morning in the village in in December. It was freezing cold. She comes in with a you know a tutu and cowboy boots, you know, very uh, you know um, ambitious and ready to go. And I was ready to go and. Things were good. And uh, I invited her out on New Year's Eve. She stood me up. I sat on a couch all night hum- playing a little ditty that eventually evolved into She's Gone. Um, Daryl and I, Daryl, I played it for Daryl. He sat down at the piano, played the very signature keyboard part that's become, you know, uh, so synonymous with the, with the beginning of that, the introduction to that song. And we literally wrote it. Um, so... It was one of those things here again. I mean, now that we're talking about all these things, Chris, I'm, I think I'm, I'm the poster child for your show. I mean, <laughs> it's just nothing but moments, is it? It's true. And I mean, that, that moment gets back to Arif Martin because I think when anybody today listens to the production of She's Gone, that clearly was not like a lot of other records on the radio at that time. I always felt what he brought to that in terms of the strings and the instrumentation and the, uh, just the strange soloing. I mean, he took what was, you know, obviously a very solid, um, you know, song and, and brought a lot of production elements to it that really make it timeless. I think his production techniques, uh, of course, on entire the whole album of Ben and Luncheonette, but particularly on She's Gone, there's something about that record. I heard it this morning on the radio and I stopped and I thought, this thing still sounds like a new record. It's still, it's still doing things that a lot of records don't do uh, yeah. and incorporating elements that are just incredible. It's the definition of classicism. It's, it's, it's something that is timeless. And uh, it was the perfect storm of creativity in Atlantic Studios with him, Arif Martin, kind of guiding us uh, along the way and surrounding us with the greatest musicians in New York at the time. Uh, you know, the people who played on that record are just, uh, you know, who's who of, of the greatest R&B and jazz musicians of the, of the era. Uh, you know, so, you know, you put put the great musicians together with fundamentally a great song with a great arranger and producer. And uh, our performance was, was pretty good, too. Yeah. Um, and you put it all together and that's what you have. Jim, moving ahead. So, you know, these these moments go on and there's one that jumped out at me. It's not I never would have known about it. I don't think anybody would have had we not written the book together. Uh, Change of Seasons was in the about 1977 when you guys have experienced a lot of success at that point. Uh, you're making money and things are really going well. You, there's a moment in your life where you decide you're going to go essentially back to school. You're going to go learn to perfect your craft. And you look up a, a music teacher in New York City, a very well-known music teacher, and you do something that a lot of people at your level at that point I don't think would have done. You go back to school and you begin this rigorous training to to get better at what you're doing, to kind of live up to what you're trying to do. And I think the her name was, was Helen Hobbs Jordan, right? That's correct. Yep. Helen Hobbs Jordan. She was a – she was – she was – Probably in her 80s uh, or late, at least late 70s. Of course, you know, when you're in your 20s, you think everybody's Every, over. 
<laughs> like ancient. Um, so, uh, but she was quite old, and uh, I remember her, her. You know, she her one of her claims to fame and her her history was that she played stride piano on the Transcontinental Railroad. So, well, anyway, she was a professional music teacher. It was really uh, what happened was we had done an album called War Babies, and. Daryl was moving in a very progressive direction. Uh, we, th- the guys in our band at the time, a lot of them were jazz and fusion type players. People like Rick Laird from Mahavishnu Orchestra and um, and a number of people like that who were really kind of much more uh, instrumentally sophisticated than I was at the time. And after kind of you know you know I I kind of got by on my you know. Uh, my good ears and my instincts on that record, but I realized there was a there was a there was a real um, gap in my uh, in in my theory, harmony and theory and, and the more sophisticated side of my music um, my musical personality, and so I went to her to try to uh, basically you know kind of top up that that part of me that I felt was missing. And it, it really worked. It was a crash course. It was an intensive six months of very, very hard work and studying. And it's really held me in good stead for the rest of my life. I still rely on it, um, even though, you know, I don't use it all the time. But it's always there in the background now. It's made me, made me a much more complete musician. Mm-hmm. John, do you look at the moment uh, in 1985, you guys, by this point now, you're the arguably if not the biggest act in the world certainly in the top two or three uh you you're performing that year 85 at live aid um there's a huge concert out at liberty island there's also a smaller show in terms of audience but no less uh, significance at the apollo theater in new york city in harlem you guys you and daryl it's sort of a great closing the circle daryl had taken you to see the temptations on sort of one of your first musical outings, and now you're back in that theater, and you're you're bringing the Temptations back on stage to perform with you guys. Yet something happens after that show that again becomes one of the biggest moments in your life. Uh, describe the the afterglow of what's a you know the show is taped for television, it's taped for a live record. It's a big night, but afterwards in the swirl backstage, you and Daryl have this quiet moment where you sort of uh, recalculate what the next step is. Yeah, there was a, there was a, there were three actual uh, moments that happened around that time. The first was uh, "We Are the World," the "We Are the World" recording right. session in L.A. with with Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie, and Quincy Jones. That was the was one of the one of them. That was followed shortly thereafter by the Live Aid show, where we headlined with Mick Jagger and Tina Turner and Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin. And then there was the Apollo Theater, where we performed with Eddie Kendrick and David Ruffin, uh, who were the principal lead singers of the original Temptations lineup, and so very important to both Daryl and I. So um, there were these three big, big moments that happened, and they kind of, um, I think they all just kind of pointed to this culmination of of an of a of a time of a, of a partnership of a of a you know basically a you know a, a, the end of a certain portion of a career i would say i think daryl and i both realized that it was for us to go forward we could not keep trying to repeat ourselves you know chasing 
commercial success is probably one of the biggest pitfalls that any recording artist can ever, you know, uh, allow themselves to fall into. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you're bound to you're bound to fail. There's no doubt about it. You will fail. Um, and uh, I think we had a lot of. I mean, I give I give both of us a lot of credit for realizing that at an early age and at that point. Because it's a very heady time. You know, when you're on the top of the world in terms of commerciality and popularity. It's very difficult to step off that peak. You know, you don't want to step off that peak. You, you know, you kind of, uh, it's almost a drug. It is a drug of sorts, you know, where you, you just need it. You want it and you want to sustain it. But at the same time, the, the, the common sense part of the brain, if you listen to, to it, you'll know that, you know, you're bound to, it's, it's, a, it's, it's here again, it's a, it's a game that you're, you're going to lose. So um, I think we were very, I think was very um, bold and uh, very brave to, uh, to say, you know what, it's time to stop. It's time to see where the future is going to take, uh, what, what the future has in, in store for us as individuals and collectively, and um, step off that merry-go-round. You know, uh, here again, it's been a lot of songs written about that. You know, John Lennon wrote a song about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people write, you know, write and, and talk about that. And very few people, I think, have the guts to uh, to to really actually act on it and give it up. And you guys did. And you take this break and you essentially walk away from that life and that lifestyle. Uh, you're confronted not too long after that with another moment that is not as exciting in a, in an office in lower Manhattan with a financial guy who who gives you some news that you're not expecting right that you you know once you guys stop performing for a while your manager kind of goes away and you guys are sort of on your own at this point and then you learn that there isn't perhaps the I don't know, for want of a better word, the nest egg that might have been there, right? And you have this moment in an office where a financial guy tells you, hey, wait a minute, you need to start getting rid of some things here. You've got some issues you've got to deal with. Yeah, well, the, the, it was it was all part and parcel of this stepping away. When Daryl and I decided to step away and we were no longer going to be generating money and we were no longer going to be, um, you know, uh, able to provide, uh, you know, the infrastructure for management and agents and band members and all these other things. Well, you know, everyone goes their separate ways and all of a sudden you're left uh, to your own devices and then you find out that uh, the things that you thought you were secure in, i.e., you know, uh, money, certain futures, um, weren't there, and then to, to compound that and put a put a nail into that, um, I was getting divorced all at the same time. So uh, it was pretty traumatic. But here again, in retrospect, now I look back on it, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It forced me to take charge of my own life. Forced me to make some very important decisions on how I was going to go forward. And I uh, decided to make a radical change in my life, and it led me to an incredibly amazing future. It actually, and it forced another big move in your life where you, you kind of picked up, you uprooted, left mm-hmm. the East Coast and went to Colorado and, and got a little apartment and kind of rebuilt a lot of things in your life. Uh, I mean, it sounded like spiritually, financially, emotionally, every aspect of your life, you were sort of going back to square one and, and redefining and reinventing what the next step, what the next move was going to be, right? Yeah, it seems like my life and now here again in retrospect now I have the, have the advantage of, of age now to look back and it seems like every 20 years something happens to me. So we've got a ways to go with the new the latest chapter. So uh, that's good. I, I can I can relax for a little bit. Uh, so we'll, take a, we'll take a quick break here and be right back on the moment I am Chris Epting, my 
guest is John Oates. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Back here on The Moment, I am Chris Epting with my guest today, John Oates. John, thank you for taking so much time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. No, it's good, man. I, I always love talking to you, Chris, especially since I don't have to do a lot of uh, answering because you already know all the answers. <laughs> well, I don't. Well, you know what? Here's the thing. I, here's what I really don't know. In terms of big moments in your life, to pick up a little bit, you've moved to Colorado. Uh, were it not for that move, you probably wouldn't have ended up where you are right now today in Nashville. And, uh, you know, long story short, from Colorado, you began developing this relationship with the city. And and a lot of it's based on sort of going back to square one with the first musical love of your life, which was roots, bluegrass, blues, real Americana music. That became your next musical calling. And it's, it's what takes up a lot of your time today, probably more than anything, right? I mean, your most recent release, Arkansas, was highly acclaimed and, uh, you know, resulted in, I think, for you, this sort of musical freedom that really allows you to go back to that early musician back in Philadelphia in the early 60s that would go to the Philadelphia Folk Festival and really embraced artists like, you know, Doc Watson and all these wonderful, you know, American, uh, you know, strictly American uh, blues, folk Americana artists. And here you are today, and this is the music that you're making that's new and fresh and different and really most vital for you, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, the city of Nashville and the musicians and the culture um, were a uh, rekindling. With it, it was like a, it was like shining a light on on something in my past that I had really uh, just kind of, you know, not abandoned and forgot about, but definitely not not spent any time revisiting. And it gave me a chance to revisit it. And once I did, I realized how important it was to me and how you know how much of a part of my real, true, deep musical personality, uh, that music, that roots in Americana music and blues or whatever, uh, really was to making me the musician I am. So it's really been almost like a, a brand new career uh, with the great support of a, 
of a city and a musical culture and uh, especially musicians who who've really been able to support me and help me uh, kind of rediscover something about myself, which is really pretty incredible, something I never thought would happen. Well, you've been accepted down there. And like, I remember you telling me that just being John Oates isn't enough to do it. That may get you an extra shot. But once that happens, you've got to prove yourself, right? And down there, they've, you've obviously proven yourself because you've got some of the best in the world to not only embrace you, but want to perform with you and tour with you. And you've really become part of the fabric of that musical community. Oh, I like to think so. I mean, I, it's you know, it's a great, great sense of pride for me to uh, to be included in that in that world, um, you know, or this world as as we sit here in Nashville, talk about it. Great musicians, um, and you know, from my very first recording sessions here, I felt at home. Uh, but I also knew that I had a lot of work to do uh, because it was very easy for me to be complacent with just playing the same Hall and Oates songs over and over again for many, many years and be satisfied with, uh, with just my role in that, in that musical, in that band and that style. Um, but then to, uh, to step out into, uh, you know, into that, into the world of, of consummate musicianship, uh, instrumentalists who are really, really, really amazing, uh, players and songwriters then I, I think I needed to, t- to ratchet it up a bit. And uh, I, de- I definitely did some woodshedding and practicing, and I realized that I wanted to be, I wanted to see how good I could be. Um, and that, that was a real challenge and exciting, exciting uh, opportunity for me to, to really um, to grow again. I mean, you had done, up until this point now, a number of, of good, solid solo efforts. You started, I guess, scratching that creative itch almost 20 years ago or so. And and progressively, they get better and stronger. I think the album uh, Good Road to Follow was a real turning point for you and that you found the players and the songs and had the music to really back this this concept up. But Arkansas seems like like you really elevated to where you feel you need to be. I mean, that feels like every cylinder was firing. And uh, is it as satisfying as it seems to be for you? Because after having you watched you play it live, listening to you talk about it, it really seems like something that uh, you've achieved that you're, you're really proud of. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of, uh, there's always the, 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 you you throw around the word magical or inspired or, uh, you know, it's easy to throw those words around it. And I've been involved with a lot of amazing recording experiences, but the recording of Arkansas, I honestly did take on a magical inspired uh, divine quality. And I, I know it sounds hippy dippy and it sounds perhaps overblown, but uh, one of the reasons I, I say that is because I didn't really intend to make this record. This record was made by other forces and what happened was I just wanted to make a, a very simple uh, tribute to Mississippi John Hurt perhaps it was going to be an EP perhaps it was going to be a couple songs that I'd release on YouTube and not even you know record in any other way I didn't know what it was I just I just enjoyed being in the studio I enjoyed playing the guitar and singing and that's how it started but once I once I realized that that wasn't quite getting it for me and I didn't want to abandon these amazing songs I started to assemble a band and the band I assembled was very unique and eclectic 
And all of a sudden, the music began to evolve. Uh, you know, it took on a life of its own. And the recording was effortless and exciting. And uh, it, I just, it, w- it wasn't something, I could never have pre-planned this, this experience. And that's what makes it even more worthwhile and more, uh, more you know, rewarding for me. Because it was something that I just didn't, I never expected and I never intended to do, but it was so good. It just um, took on a life of its own. And it, it made me, uh, you know, get back into a little bit of music history and doing research on the, on an era in time where American popular music was at its birth and, at, at, you know, and just beginning. It was just, uh, there were so many interesting things that came from this recording project. Well, you sort of become like a modern day Harry Smith where you become the guy who's going out and sort of mining the knowledge and the history and the information, except you as a musician can also create the work and sing the work. I mean, what I think back to when you were doing that project, you talk about fate and, and kismet and this sort of this mood and this vibe that was going on. Out of the blue, our mutual friend Tracy Yee, lo and behold, tracks down the Mississippi John Hurt guitar that your old buddy Jerry Ricks had lent to you to play on the Abandoned Luncheonette album. And within the the making of that album, you wind up with that very guitar that you had last touched back in the early 70s. And it was, I, I think, just symptomatic of how magical the process was that that guitar would find its way back to you in that moment in a project that started out as a Mississippi John Hurt project is, yep. is remarkable. It is. It's more than remarkable. It, it is truly magical, and and I don't even know how to describe it. You couldn't. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, if so, if someone made this up in a story, you know, people would go, yeah, well, probably not. But it happened. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at that guitar as we speak. Um, I play it every day, and uh, it's it's just one of those things. It was almost like mana from heaven, you know, a gift from the gods that uh, this guitar came back to me, and uh, it came back to me at this very moment in time. John, when you played, brought the band out and played at the Troubadour in West L.A., the, the audience was predominantly young people. By young, you know, we're talking mid-20s, early 30s. Do you find yourself uh, connecting with an audience that, you know, forget not being born when this music was made. In some cases, their parents and grandparents weren't born. What's it like to, to have feedback and to have an interest from younger, younger listeners like that? Well, I think, you know, I think there's a younger audience that's, that's interested in the the Hall and Oates music for sure, for sure, because we're playing giant arenas and predominantly filled with younger people. Um, in terms of my solo work, I think in the urban centers and in, in the more sophisticated cities, I have a younger audience, but in the smaller cities, I have an older audience because I think uh, people just aren't sure what they're going to hear. Uh, what, what I've been doing is, is basically building a new career, which is not something I really you know, wanted to do, but it's kind of happening uh, kind of naturally. And I'm playing this music for people and I'm, I'm teaching them a little bit about early American popular music through the through the performance. And at the same time, I'm, I'm building a different type of fan base who are not, uh, not viewing me only as half of Hall and Oates or as, you know, part of the eighties hit making machine, but they're realizing that I'm bringing something else to the table, which is very, very satisfying. It's also very, very hard work. Have you ever thought about uh, teaching maybe at the college level or something in Nashville where you would actually teach a course about American music and the history of it? I, I would I would actually welcome that. Um, I think maybe things like that are part of my uh, not-so-distant future. Um, you know, as the years go on, you know, you always wonder how long you can uh, sustain being a touring musician. It is hard. I'm still 
physically healthy enough to do it and enjoy it. But there, that's something in the future. You know, I, I always I enjoy teaching. I was a guitar teacher as a kid uh, going through college. Um, I've done some work with Berkeley College of Music, uh, kind of visiting professorship up there. Uh, in the songwriting department and things like that. So, yeah, it's something I think I, I, I would enjoy doing. Um, we have to see where that might take me. John, lastly, as far as the upcoming year, uh, what can you share? I know typically you map your year out or sometimes multiple years out. What does the next, say, 12 months look like for you? Uh, as well, it's, start, it's, start, it's starting to become a little bit more uh, defined now. Um, I think uh, the, as far as the Hall & Oates front goes, Daryl and I are going to step away from American touring for this year. We we have toured very, very hard and extensively over the past three or four years in America, uh, nonstop, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, it's time for us to stay out of the market. You know, and that's just from a, you know, that's just a practical business point of view. It's always good to step away a little bit. And we're getting some interesting offers from Europe and around the world. And I think it's time for us to uh, do a few shows outside of America uh, and play. Uh, we, we already have some UK and European plans uh, for the early part of the year and uh, even probably over the summer. So I think that'll be the focus for us and probably a few American shows later in the, in the year, like in the third quarter and fall. Uh, for me personally, I don't think I'll do as many solo shows this year. I think it's time for me to also step back a little from that. Um, I have a few other things that I want to do. I want to try to enjoy myself a little bit more. Um, I've got this amazing car that I want to drive and my, my car has opened up this, uh, this Porsche experience. If you could, in a nutshell, describe that for people because the car has taken on. It's like a personality of its own. Yeah, it's absolutely. almost like your new partner. You know, forget Hall and Oates. It's Porsche Oates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I've spent uh, two years collaborating with a really amazing guy named Rod Emery to build this, uh, to rebuild a 1960 Porsche Cabriolet into a work of art. Quite frankly, uh, and and it's something that um, I always wanted to do. Never thought I might do it, but I did. And now this car has gotten so much interest and so much uh, attention that it's really rekindled my uh, relationships with a lot of uh, auto uh, auto uh, enthusiasts and also racing people who that I've known over the years. And now I've kind of come back into that circle of. of uh, Old, you know, old friends who were in the racing, uh, you know, auto racing business, and and uh, it's just been a kind of a really cool chance for me to uh, make new friends and rekindle old friendships. And uh, the car has been kind of a magic carpet that's taken me down this yet new career path. It's another moment. What's it? You're getting behind the wheel again too, once in a while. You know, as a former, um, you know. Decorated race car driver. How's that been to feel well, the road a little bit? Hopefully, it wasn't decorated, but uh, uh, I very <laughs> you were pretty good. I mean, you you, I, you distinguished few, yourself. Uh, I, no, it's given me a chance. I, I don't want to race. I have no desire to race, but I love to drive. I've always loved to drive, and uh, yes, I've had the opportunity to uh, through some mutual friends to get behind the wheel of some iconic. Uh, race cars that are historically significant and just an amazing experience to be sitting in the same seat that were, that people like Graham Hill and Derek Bell and these incredibly legendary race car drivers have actually driven these very same cars. So this is, I mean, it's almost from a historic point of view. It's a it's a thrill and a real honor to be able to uh, just to enjoy the, 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 the skill of driving, which is something I've always loved to do. 
John, you are a man of many moments. I wish you many more, no doubt, more than anybody else. You've got a lot more coming down the pike, but I really appreciate you taking your time to chat with me here today on The Moment. Well, thanks, Chris. It's always fun. There you have it, my epic marathon conversation with the one and only John Oates, who, you know, to his credit, has so many moments we could talk about. We could obviously fill a lot more time in there. You know, it's funny. When I sit here listening to a conversation like that, it it makes me key in on a moment in my life, which is uh, the day John said, let's write this book together. You know, it's, it's it's surreal sometimes. I grew up really enjoying the music of Hall & Oates. I first saw them, I think, in 1977 in Central Park, New York. I would never miss a tour all through the 70s, 80s, 90s, all the way up. I mean, I was a fan. I really, really enjoyed them. And so... You know, when something like this happens, you just kind of sit there sometimes pinching yourself saying, how, how am I ending up, you know, backstage at all these Hall & Oates shows and traveling with John and, and telling his story? And so that was really a moment for me when John said, you know what, you and me are going to do this. And then it was funny, after the book came out, we were in Las Vegas, Hall & Oates was there playing and John and I were having lunch one day and the book was, I think it was just before it came out, like, you know, it was imminent. It was right around the corner. And I said, but, but it was finished. And I said to him, um, let me ask you, are you happy with how the book turned out? And he said, you know what? He said, uh, I am. He goes, and not for the reasons that I thought I would be. He said, I'm, I'm, I love the content. I love how it looks. I love the pictures and all that. He goes, but what I love even more than the book itself is I love the fact that the process forced me to go in and think about things that I never would have probably thought about again. And I thought that was a really interesting comment because that's what writing a memoir does. It does make you go back and there's so many things stuck in the, the cobwebs of our mind that we don't think about anymore until you kind of force yourself to do it. That's why I always encourage people to think about moments in their life and to make those lists and think about writing those stories out, whether you want to be a writer or not. It's just a good, healthy, cathartic exercise to, to think about those moments, to relive them, because if you don't commit to doing it, then they're gone. Then you may never reacquaint yourself with them with them again. And, you know, I thought the way John keyed in on that was was really smart. And it's led to other things as well. He and I are kicking around another book idea right now. And I look forward to a lot of more moments with John. If you have a chance to ever see John Oates um, with Hall & Oates, obviously, but more, I think even more importantly, as a solo artist with the Good Road Band, he's actually out touring now as this episode is airing, uh, seeing John as a solo artist is a chance to experience you know, it's funny, John came up a big fan of roots music and folk and blues in his late teens and early 20s, but now he's become an interpreter of that music. So it's almost like he's become a legendary roots artist himself. And so you have this great connection of an authentic artist who grew up with the music, who now translates it and presents it with the stories and the history and everything that really helps bring it to life. Uh, and, and I think that's, you know, again, people... You know, nothing like a Hall & Oates show. You know, it's packed with hits and it's thoroughly entertaining. But when you go to a smaller venue and watch John sort of the the musical professor, you know, play these songs with such authentic jobs with great band members, and then um, listen to the stories in between, it's exciting. And, and you realize that this is an artist who is just that. He's a true artist. He's committing to always looking forward, never just content to kind of hang back on what he's done, but to always keep pushing that ball uphill in search of what the next song is, what the next uh, you know, exploration is going to be. And I really respect John for that. 
that. It has been a privilege writing with him and getting to know him. And again, uh, we are kicking around a new idea, which hopefully we can talk about soon. But in the meantime, that will wrap up this episode of The Moment. Uh, this episode will be available for download. You can listen to it on Spotify or iTunes or right here in Voice America. I want to thank my engineer today, Aaron Keller, for making this all so easy and fun. Thank you, Aaron, for uh, being my wingman here. I'll be back next week with another episode. If you're a baseball fan, I will tease it with that. I am a huge baseball fan and I have a really fun guest that you'll be talking to uh, in the next episode that I think you'll enjoy. In the meantime, thank you for hanging with me. My name is Chris Epting. Think about the moments in your life. Can't stress that enough. Grab a pad, jot them down. I promise you, they will come in handy. So until we next meet, I will uh, be finding my own moments. I'll be back at you soon. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week. 